0: Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips, proven frameworks, and share ways to help you delight your customers. Today, I am honored to have a very special guest, professor of marketing at the Wharton School of Business, at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Peter Fader. We will talk about how his new book may revolutionize the way Wall Street looks at what a company is actually worth. And it's not based on traditional financial metrics alone, but the overall health of its customers. I wrote a post recently on LinkedIn about this concept of segmenting and treating customers differently based on the value. Uh, that they bring to the organization, and the results I got were highly polarized. Shouldn't we treat all customers alike? He suggests that if you're leading a customer-centric organization, you may want to rethink about how you're approaching your customer segmentation. This episode will break down the customer base audit with real-world example from his book and from my experience as a CX practitioner and other practical applications. I do hope you'll keep an open mind because this is going to be interesting as we dive into some groundbreaking concepts that could change the way organizations think and the way you think about your business. Let's jump right in. Well, I am so excited to have my guest on the show, Dr. Peter Fader, who is the Francis and Pei-Wan Cha Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. His expertise centers around the analysis of behavioral data to understand and forecast customer shopping and purchasing activities. He works with firms from a a wide range of industries such as telecommunications, financial services, gaming and entertainment, retailing, and pharmaceuticals. In addition to his various roles and responsibilities at Wharton, Professor Fader co-founded a predictive analytics firm, Zodiac, in 2015, which was sold to Nike in 2018. He then founded and continues to run Theta to commercialize his more recent work on customer-based corporate valuation, which we're going to talk some more about in this podcast. He's also the author of Customer Centricity, Focus on the Right Customers for Strategic Advantage in 2020, and co-authored the Customer Centricity Playbook with Sarah Toms 2018. Today, we'll take a deeper dive into his third book, The Customer-Based Audit, which will be published really soon this fall. Um, so stay tuned. You can pick it up on Amazon and we'll have all that in the show notes um, in addition to any other references we have uh, during the show. I know this. his research has opened my eyes and I hope you will perhaps rethink how you think the conventional wisdom exists in this space that we're going to be talking about, which is um, all related to his new book, The customer Base Audit. And with, uh, without further ado, let me introduce my guest today, Dr. Peter Fader.
1: Thanks, Mark. Great to talk to you.
0: Great to talk to you. And uh, as a segue into uh, the audience getting to know you a little better, you and I share something in common, which was we both grew up in Nassau County, which if you're not familiar with New York, that's on Long Island. And we grew up two towns away from each other. Uh, and we we learned that about our ourselves and we just talked about some some local things we had in common but from there um, your your path took a different direction and um, tell us tell us about yourself how did you land in academia and what path brought you to both marketing but more importantly now you're in the customer experience world. so how did you get there?
1: i I wonder how I, like <laughs> it's not like when I was seven years old mommy I want to be a marketing professor. <laughs> does that? Right. Uh, I was a math kid. I just just loved uh, just uh, crunching numbers on anything. So I was big into sports, uh, sports statistics long before all the saber metrics and all that became popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, really, really interested in, in those kinds of things. Uh, anything I could find with, with numbers, I'd be fascinated by. Uh, uh, I probably shouldn't admit this at the outset of the podcast, but uh, 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 one of my things is I collect dollar bills with interesting serial numbers. I okay. run the website, coolnumbers.com. It's a really lame website. It's a really lame idea. Uh, but ever since I was seven years old, uh, mom would come back from the grocery store from Walbaums. Oh yeah. Long Island kids would remember. Yeah. And I'd look through all the dollar bills and I would, I would, I would give each one a score. Like this is an interesting number. I get this one an eighty. This one's boring, twenty-five. Um, and then I finally like came up with a website to to like formalize that. So yeah, fascinated by numbers and just kind of predicting things and so on. And uh, I, I was a math major at MIT. Not really sure what I would do with that. Like would I go into Wall Street or would I go to consulting? I was even talking to I remember to the the NSA about maybe being a you know cryptographer spy whatever something, um, and then this one professor came up to me, and she said, "You want to get a PhD in marketing?" Hmm. And I wasn't interested in either of those things, a PhD or marketing. Uh, and but but she was very persuasive, and she talked me into it. She basically this was this was 1982, 1983, mm-hmm. and she painted this picture which was shockingly true. She said we are in the process of building the electron microscope of the customer that we're soon going to be in a position where we can track every customer and what they're doing over time and who they're doing it with. And just imagine the fun you would have with that kind of data. And so, so first of all, she was, just brilliant that she could see Google and all that. You know, this is the 15 years before any of those companies were founded. Um, but she also knew how to press my buttons. Mm. Uh, and so, uh, not out of any particular desire, but just because uh, I had a hard time saying no to something so <laughs> persuasive. I followed her advice. Uh, her name is Lee McAllister. She's now a professor at the University of Texas. Uh mm. she's my fairy godmother because I thank mm. her for for pushing me in this direction. Mm. That was 40 years ago and it's just been super fun since then.
0: You know, there's a lesson in that. I mean, I, not to go off off topic there, but some some people may be sharing information with you that they feel compelled, they have it on their heart to share with you because they see something in you that connects to th- their thought and and listen, you know, listen.
1: That's right, so much of of my, I don't know, success, whatever, has been just from listening to people, nudging me in a direction that I either wouldn't have anticipated or didn't even agree with. Uh, and say, sure, why not? Let's see where this takes us. And, and it's, it's interesting in hindsight, how many of these things, whether it's the books I've written, reluctant, the companies I founded, reluctant, a lot of the things—it's like that's not what I do—but um, mm. not only have some of some of these things, not all, some been successful, but they they seem to fit together in a way that that some people look at it and say, "Man, you really organized your life really well." That like, you, know, how did you think through this whole sequence of things? And the reality is, and this is no, so, this is not any false humility. It's just honest. It was just you know saying yes to uh, interesting people with interesting ideas and then figuring out the connections after that.
0: Nice. Lo- love that story. Um, so I recently posted a question on LinkedIn uh, about whether all customers should be treated the same. And I had a variety of different people from different walks of life responded and their reactions were very polarized. The customer base audit suggests that segmenting customers is the key to success. This idea of not, I repeat, not treating all customers the same hits a trigger and it's quite provocative. I would say contrarian. It's especially provocative for those of us who are in the CX, you know, CX world or CX professionals. And I can't wait to take a deeper dive into this with you, but first, what compelled you to write the customer base audit? I mean, cause there are a lot of books, a lot of business books on the shelf. What white space did you see for what you had to say?
1: It's a couple of different things. Uh, so, Number one, a, a big piece of what I want to accomplish is accountability, transparency okay. about the nature and the health of the customer base. And so I just love the notion of an audit. I look at just maybe the fear that it strikes in the heart of a corporate executives that they have to reveal everything about the nature of their business. But usually the customer piece isn't a part of the typical financial audit. So let's have a special audit just for that important part. In fact, I'd claim. That we need to do the customer audit before we do any other kind of audit. Mm. we can't really our cash flow or our revenue unless we know where all that money's coming from the customers and It turns out that there's some very i think standardized ways to look at to talk about to measure our customer behavior uh i've, I've This is a lot of the work that my co authors and I have done uh, over the years but but let's kind of collect it together in a in a fairly practical way right not glorifying the models but but glorifying the implications of the models. So number one is there's just a, a crying need for it. A lot of companies out there that are either ignoring their customers or just making stuff up without any accountability. It's just one part. Another part, it, in in some ways, it's kind of a prequel to my other two books, because they talk about customer centricity and not all customers are created equal. And and before you take my word for it, and it's very clear from what you said, many people don't. right. Um, Let's first just look at the data. Let's not even run any models, no forecasts. Uh, uh, let's just look at the actual historical data to see what it looks like. Uh, and if you see the kinds of patterns that I know you're going to see, then it's going to spur you to take action, to to be more customer-centric, to calculate and leverage customer lifetime value. So in, in many ways, in fact, if we look at the, the subtitle of, of the new book, it's the first step on the journey to customer centricity. Uh, and I, so even though it's the third book, <laughs> it's kind of like a Lord of the Rings thing, let's, you know, save the prequel till later. Right. Um, uh, I, I really think it's, it's a very, very important step if, if people are gonna really buy into everything else that I've written and said.
0: And so you bring up this, uh, this concept, which you coined, I believe, Customer-Based Corporate Valuation or CBCV. Tell, tell the audience, you know, obviously this relates to what you were just talking about. How is that concept being received in, in, in the world, particularly among executives?
1: It's amazing. Uh, wow. I wish I had done it a, a lot sooner. Uh, well, I, to be more specific about that, once again, chance occurrence. I wish I had met my partner in crime, Dan McCarthy, a lot sooner. Uh, it's something that, that I and other marketing professors have been talking about for a long time. And we feel that a lot of our methods, things like customer lifetime value, shouldn't be bottled up in marketing alone, that we have something to say to others in the organization, including and especially the CFO. Uh, So actually, the idea of customer-based corporate valuation did not start with us. It's something that the colleagues have been talking about for a couple of decades. But no one's done it in a way to actually win over the attention and respect of finance and accounting professionals. The way it's always been has been kind of bass-ackwards, which is something along these lines. Hey, finance and accounting people, you're doing it all wrong, listen to us instead. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's going to go well. Mm -hmm. Um, So meeting Dan McCarthy, who uh, was uh, my uh, former PhD student, he's a professor now at Emory University, he said, we have to bring our tools to them on their terms. So, like finance people are going to live and die by discounted cash flow and, and, and all of the metrics and approaches that they use. Let's just show them that they should do their thing, but just embedding some of our models and metrics and, and all that will just help them do their thing a little bit better. Uh, and boom, it's really taken off. As, and if you think about it, as I said before, instead of looking at a company's revenue by itself, Let's break it down and let's understand the sources of that revenue. It all comes down to acquiring new customers who stick around for a while and buy from you and give you some money in the process. And if we can look at those four behaviors instead, customer acquisition, retention, repeat purchase and spend, understand them, model them, forecast them, and then piece them together, that's revenue. So by, by decomposing revenue into customer behavior components, uh, we can forecast revenue more accurately over a long horizon with a better diagnostic understanding of what's going on. And therefore, we can do kind of a better job than traditional Wall Street approaches of, of valuing an entire enterprise. Uh, and that's that was the nature of Dan McCarthy's dissertation. And it's been Great, because the finance people are not only paying attention, but it really does elevate uh, the, the role of the marketing folks as well. And, and starts to build a, a bona fide bridge between them where you can actually get that cross-functional conversation happening in a way that it's just really never happened before. And it's very gratifying to see it happen.
0: So so that is awesome. I mean, if, you are, if you're listening and you're a CX professional or a CX practitioner, this is music to your ears because... Once, once um, it gets to the CFO or the CEO's attention, where they're having to report or choosing to report on in this kind of data, then you'd like to think the strategies, the the action plans, the behaviors will will need to follow, and you'll get more support instead of pushing the rock up the hill all the way. I also wanted to pull a gem out of what you just said. Also, we're kind of I love these these learning these lessons that are a little bit off topic, but what you shared was this bridge, this kind of bridge to the breakthrough, which was Dan, Dan using really empathy, which um, to, to, to say, Hey, if I'm, instead of me pushing it my way on them, let me, let me put myself in their shoes and talk their language, which if you're, again, if you're a CX practitioner, most of us um, don't, don't have positional authority. So everything has to come through influence, and so we have small departments relative to other parts of the organization. So we have to rely on persuasive and influence. And the only way to really be successful, and I I have my challenges, I'll admit personally, but is to really try to put yourself in their shoes. So I love that story of the breakthrough there.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm really, really serious about it to the point where it's not only putting yourself in their shoes, but even admitting when your own shoes don't. Fit or mm. something like that. Yeah. So for instance, uh, I've been pushing this conceptual idea, something that a lot of people in marketing like to refer to as customer equity. If we just add up all of that lifetime value, that's customer equity. Mm. People been making a big deal about it, including myself. I have a whole chapter in my first book about customer equity. And then talking to Dan says, you know, Pete, you gotta stop talking about that. You gotta drop that customer equity. You know, it's a nice word, customer equity. It would go well in a poll, but it's not gonna go well in a, in a financial setting uh, because if we're gonna talk about equity, then not only do we have to talk about the, the the value that exists there, but we have to talk about the capital structure behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and us as marketers, uh, we tend to like get scared by that. Yeah. So in the revised version of my first book, still have that chapter called customer equity. I don't want to run away and pretend I never said those words, but I have a little footnote that says, I don't really believe any of this stuff anymore. <laughs> Here's what I was thinking 10 years ago, and you could read it for yourself and judge for yourself. So part of it is admitting we're wrong uh, and, that we, and that we learn and adapt. And I'm sure that some of the things I'm talking to you about right now, Mark, I'll, I'll regret <laughs> two years from now, uh, but I'll admit it. I will admit it. Uh, and, and I'm always trying to improve.
0: Well, and that's a really important life lesson in addition. So the questions that you're asking, this is, what, this is what I love about the way you're approaching this because you're asking questions that anybody can understand. I love the simplicity of the questions. And I, wanna, I want you to tell the audience about a little story I, I, that you shared in the book. Um, and the questions that you're asking how, sound really simple. Let me just give you three examples, maybe four. How many customers does your firm have?
1: Oh, so stop right there. All right. I know what story you're talking about. I got to tell this story. But let me let me just let me just put a fine
0: point on the how many customers, because that sounds like if you're not in business, let's say you're a medical professional or an engineer or a teacher or something. And you you have to say, of course, everybody knows how many customers they have. If you're a business leader, you you know that. Let me tell you, I, I worked in a financial institution for nine years. It took me like the first two years to get the answer to that question. And the definitions kept changing. And so we had to come up with a definition. And you're right. You write in the book that the sources are all over the place. So let me let me go back to you, but just to validate what you're about to say.
1: Yeah, I love it. And I so appreciate you bringing it up. This was this was a, a life-changing moment for me. Wow. around Around 10 years ago. Um, and I, I do have permission from the CEO to tell the story, but without uh, uh, naming names. Uh, so we were working with a, a major a car rental company uh, and I had a little research center and we were going to take their data and kind of, you know, add value to it. It was, it was great. Uh, and so we're sitting down with, with my my research team uh, and and uh, one of them, our research director, Ellie Fite, she she uh, says, says, you know, basically ask the first question, how many customers do you have? And they're all kind of like look, look, looking at each other. And she's saying, you know, like, how many, you know, rows do you have in the spreadsheet? How many customers do you have? Um, and they they, they 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 don't know. And then she said, tell you what, let me ask you another question instead. How many cars do you have? And then with one voice, they all answer. And I remember what the number was, 432,671. Right. Um, and... Uh, and and on one hand, they're feeling real proud that they know the answer to that question. Yeah. But the CEO, to his great credit, he literally pounds the table and he mm. says, this is unacceptable. How can it be that we know how many, you know having a car doesn't bring us any revenue. Having a customer does. Mm. <laughs> it is, it, yes, yeah. it's good to know how many cars we have, but we must, must, must know how many customers we have. Now, maybe we could talk about how we define it. Is it the number of customers who have booked something with us in the last six months? We could argue about what's the right definition of a customer in the right time frame. Okay, fine. But to be looking at each other uh, with, with blank stares, not even knowing how to approach that question, this is unacceptable. And that was great. It was really, really good. The problem is that kind of story, it's still more rule than exception there's still a lot of companies out there, even some, you know, darlings of the tech sector uh, that would probably fall into that same trap. And,
0: and to me, going back to what you, I, the second gem we pulled out here, which is, or maybe the third, which was willing to admit when you're wrong and you need to shift directions is, you know, I think part of the problem is um, even when they find out or if they find out, they're not willing to admit they have a problem.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I, I just uh came back from a week in Stockholm. Okay. And I uh, spent time with my executive MBA students. Uh and we were meeting with CEOs of some 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 big companies like uh, SAS Airlines, a whole, whole bunch of companies. Uh and it was amazing how open they were uh to acknowledge their ignorances, to acknowledge um you know, bad decisions they had made, to talk candidly about the issues they're having and trying to fix some of those decisions. Uh, and it was so refreshing compared to a lot of the corporate speak that we'll have uh, over here and, and many other parts of the world, where you just know that they're not telling you the truth. You know that what they're saying isn't what they're thinking and feeling. Uh, and I think the more we can k- kind of break that down uh, and, and, and get alignment there. Uh, the the better off will be. And the area of of marketing and and customer metrics and behavior is is a really acute problem here. Look, we're seeing it uh, right now as we speak with a whole big lawsuit between uh, Twitter and Elon Musk. It all comes down to counting customers. Hmm. Uh, And so we just need to be honest about it. We need to agree upon standards and guidelines about uh, how we measure these things and how we interpret them. Uh, and we can't really talk about customer experience, and we can't make arguments for a CX campaign unless we know something about the the, the number, the nature, the value of the customers, and how much more of that we have after we run the campaign.
0: Well. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. And, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm going to get to a couple of the other questions that you asked, which are also very basic, and then and get into this um, idea of the audit itself. And as you uh, delineate it in the book, but how do these customers differ in terms of their value to the firm? How many customers accounted for half your revenue last year?
1: Yeah, everyone believes in the 80-20 rule which by the way, isn't entirely true, but everyone believes that a disproportionate number of customers carry, you know a small number of customers carry a disproportionate amount of value. No one ever argues with that. Yet then we turn around and have these polarizing debates, as, as you referred to earlier, mm-hmm. where, where, where people say, oh, no, we have to treat everybody the same. So how do we reconcile that? Uh, and if we can get people past merely talking about the 80-20 type rule and, and living it, feeling it, experiencing it, it might overcome some of that resistance. It might make them a little bit more willing, a little bolder. Say, so, you know what? We are going to treat them a little bit differently. And that's the right answer.
0: Well, and you use in the book, you, you kind of tee it up with a metaphor. Was it two two lenses and five faces? Or help me out there.
1: Well, we, we think about the data cube. I would, that Very often when companies are looking at their customer base, it's usually – with the, they, they, they kind of look at products performing over time. How much of this product did we sell this period? And what we want to do is to take the data cube and turn it so that the customer by time face is the one you're looking at. Mm. Then we look at it through five lenses. So let's look at either a static snapshot of the customer base. Mm-hmm. Let's just understand in a given period of time, how many customers bought from us, you know, 10 times versus one time. Uh, And what does that distribution look like and what does that mean? And then let's get dynamic about it. Let's look at the differences in this snapshot from one period to the next. Or the real, literally, heart of the book would be looking at a cohort of customers. Don't look at the customer base as a whole, but let's look at a group of customers who were acquired at the same time or through the same channel or through a certain campaign. And let's just follow them over time to watch how their behavior and their value changes and then compare them to the cohort that was acquired before or after and start to play connect the dots so we can start to make statements about the next cohort, the next group of customers are going to acquire even before we acquire them. Uh, and so having these different lenses really not only gives you more comfort with a lot of that the customer level data, but Instant implications about the, the things that a, a senior executive uh, and, and everyone across the organization um, should be doing a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, I love I love one of the uh, the stories that you shared in the book about um, a, a London luxury retailer that got into the cohorts and looked at the the that part of the, the data cube and re- recognized that a huge portion of the profits were coming from from customers from China. And then when the exchange rates changed, because they would disappear from one year to the next, why did they disappear? The exchange rates changed. And so at least you can develop strategies
1: around that, right? It's so true. And that's why looking at things on a cohort basis Mm. is often very insightful, because there could be good or bad things happening to your company. And it might be a while before those, say, bad things trickle through the entire customer base. But if we look at those most recent couple of cohorts and say, what's up with them? Uh th- that that's the canary in the coal mine. Mm. And so some of the work that we've been doing with through my new company, SATA, on the customer-based corporate valuation, this is an important part of it. So, you know what, private equity, son? you're thinking of buying that digitally native men's underwear company, overall looks pretty healthy. But the recent cohorts, the the, the customers you've acquired in the past couple of quarters kind of looks like they're falling off a cliff. Hmm. Is it competition? Is it you know COVID or the macro economy? Is it changes in your product? Is it changes in your customer service? We're not sure, that's not really our job, but here's an early warning sign that better fix that. In fact, maybe we shouldn't even invest in this company if the new cohorts are, 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 are so weak, even if the company as a whole is still very profitable. So it's breaking things down to that level understanding, anticipating uh, what's going to happen next. And again, taking action on.
0: And and some of the testimonials here, I I pulled one out of the book here. It says, on seeing an audit from her customer base, one CEO remarked that it was like looking at the heartbeat of her business. Say say more about that and why this is a common reaction to the customer base audit.
1: It's the common reaction, but it's not the common first step that that people take. And I've said it over and over and in different ways. And and just like you are nodding your head up and down, I'm hoping you listeners are doing the same. Uh, that it, it, it that the, the we know that job one is to acquire and, of course, to retain and develop customers. Uh, that's what is. Even Peter Drucker, the great you know business expert, was saying. You know, it's all about the customer. You know, in, in the retail world, we used to call people a shopkeeper. You're not a shopkeeper. You're a customer keeper. If mm. you're playing your cards right. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it is the most important thing, and we either neglect it by just focusing on products or we mythologize it. This is actually one of the problems that occurs in a lot of the, the CX world, is that we just t- tell the, these these mythical stories of how we took a, a so-so customer and turned them into an amazing one, uh, when a lot of these stories aren't really grounded in reality. So let's get that gritty reality. It, 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 you know, it might be the, the heart of, of, of the enterprise, which I believe it is, but, but too many people either shy away from it because it's not sexy and it does require you to do a little bit of quantitative stuff, but it's, uh, it, it must be done.
0: Well, that concludes part one of a two-part interview with Dr. Peter Fader of the Wharton School. Join us for a very insightful and provocative discussion as we conclude the series on part two. Well, thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I want to ask you to do two things. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content. And I don't want you to miss anything. And if you've gotten something out of this, share it with someone. Make sure they have access to all this content and all the other great content coming up. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes. And you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com.